Our Father in heaven, sanctify thy word. Thy word is truth. We thank thee for it, every word of it. We want to live by it in and out of this assembly, in our private lives and in our public lives. We want to enjoy the best that you have for your people, and we want to honor you with our best. Lead us and guide us in your precious scriptures regarding this subject of deacons, and we'll thank you and praise you through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the great bishop and chief bishop of our souls. Amen. Amen. How many deacons does a church need? is a question that should be asked and answered. If we read Acts chapter 6, we see that the apostles told the church at Jerusalem to look ye out seven men, and then gave their qualifications. There's no magic or sacred value in the number seven. That's what the apostles saw that that church was going to need. There's another question that goes along with this one. And that is, are they full-time or part-time? The Bible doesn't tell us. And that's a reflection of availability and how great the needs are in a church. Seven is not something we have to aim for. There's a church that does have seven and seven, seven sub-deacons, seven cardinal deacons, seven regular deacons, but we don't have to worry about them. We're just going to follow what we need. And we wouldn't need seven. Seven part-time deacons would get in each other's way in a church our size. Seven full-time deacons in the church at Jerusalem may have had to work overtime because that was one major situation and responsibility in the church at Jerusalem. When we read Acts chapter 6, when we go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're not told you have to have seven, you need seven, you must have seven. Seven's the perfect number. We're not told anything like that except in that particular church And we can see from the the evidence that the Holy Spirit gives us that it was a very large church with a very serious problem. They had seven. We will make a judgment in the next week or two as to how many we should have. And they will likely be part-time men where one, a part-time man or part-time men that will share the duties that we're going to list for them that deacons can take care of. How are deacons selected? You know, we've already reviewed Acts 6, but we want to go over it again so you know in your minds how it is done. Deacons are not picked by a bishop or a pastor to be his cronies. Deacons are picked by the church to represent them well in matters that pertain to them in the secular, worldly, carnal, financial, logistical aspects of a church. The church does the selecting. It's my obligation to teach you what those qualifications are. That's why we have Acts 6, the apostles telling the church, these are the qualifications. And then 1 Timothy 3, Paul telling Timothy, this is how you are to behave yourself in the house of God by teaching these qualifications. But the church makes the selection. And therefore the church has to be happy with the decisions that are made. Oh, there's wisdom in the word of God. Lots of wisdom. Every one of you married souls, you should be happy with the person you're married to. Do you know why? One reason, given the the point that I'm trying to make right at this moment, 
You picked them. Don't complain to God or don't complain to me or don't complain to anyone else about the person you married to because you certainly were enthusiastic about doing it a few years ago or months ago for you young couples. And when a church picks its deacons, you're going to make the selection. The whole multitude was pleased with what the apostles presented as an idea to solve their problem. They picked out seven men and brought them to the apostles. And the apostles ordained them and put them in their office, assigned them publicly what they were supposed to take care of. And that was it. And the church gave up its right to have party factions or to argue or to debate with the deacons because they gave the deacons the responsibility and the privilege of taking care of those matters, even involving widows in their families or widows that were friends of their family, they gave that away because the deacons were going to take care of that. It is an end to strife and squabbling and trouble in a church because you give away some of your rights to men that you are appointing over the business. Right. And they're ordained to that. So how are deacons selected? The church selects deacons after they're taught on what the qualifications should be. And after they're selected, then they're ordained or appointed by an apostle, which we don't have, or bishop, or bishops, or a presbytery, if there were enough bishops to form a presbytery. The apostles did it by laying on of hands, and it tells us that in verse 6 of Acts chapter 6, that the church came together and presented the seven men that they had chosen to the apostles. And when they had prayed, the apostles, they laid their hands on them, And appointed them to their public office of taking care of those financial matters of the church. That's ordination or appointment when it involves the matter of deacons. It's the formal setting apart of a man to an office by public identification and assignment of his duties. Let me say that again and just think through it. Ordination or appointment, same word in the Bible. If you can find the word ordain, I'll find you cross-references that say that word is a point. Because that's what they both mean. It's to set someone apart for an office that God has charged them with and assigning them the duties that they're supposed to take care of in that office. That's what ordination is or appointment. The apostles did it by laying on of hands, which was a public symbol of authority being transferred from one party to another. That's throughout both Testaments. Moses laid hands on men. It was practiced in the Old Testament, practiced in the New. Ministers in the New are told to lay hands suddenly on no man. That means they're supposed to be cautious and careful, slow and reserved in ordaining ordaining any man to an office that God has put in the New Testament church. That's 1 Timothy 5.22. If you've read that words, it doesn't mean to lay hands on a man like that. It means to lay hands on a man in the sense of ordination that bishops are to be cautious and slow and careful in doing so and not to do it suddenly. The next verse goes on to say that a bishop is not to partake in other men's sins by putting sinners in an office. But he's to be cautious and careful in ordination. Ordination includes prayer because it tells us in Acts 6.6 whom they set before the apostles and when they had prayed. They laid their hands on them. And if you can find a few services in the New Testament 
or events where there was someone appointed to an office, heavy prayer and fasting were often part of that to ask for God's blessing upon doing what he has called us to do. We want God to bless our deacons. We want our deacons to be enabled by God and for God to bless them with a measure of his spirit and a measure of wisdom that they can take care of this church very well. In general, what do deacons do? The first deacons in Acts chapter 6, we need to answer that question, what do deacons do? The first illustration is very helpful to us because it shows the division of labor in Acts chapter 6. There were men that God chose for the ministry of his word. And they were the apostles in this particular case and in this particular church. Those men were to give themselves to preaching the word of God and applying it and defending it and spreading it. And to prayer. They were to be men of prayer, asking God's blessing upon their ministries and upon the saints that were under their care. A wonderful combination of duties on the part of apostles and men enabled by having been with the Lord Jesus Christ for three and a half years and being full of the Holy Ghost to be able to execute those two duties very well. The purpose for deacons was to allow them to do that without any hindrance or distraction. So they could do that full time. And to have been in the church at Jerusalem, when you had those 12 men praying for the church, and when you had those 12 men laboring in the word of God, it tells us what happens in the seventh verse. And the word of God increased. The effect and influence of the gospel went out and was increased because the apostles were doing what God called them to do. What do deacons do? Anything that distracts the ministry of the word from the duties that God has given them. That is the simple, general explanation. And we're going to get more specific and practical than that as we work through this study. Those who are called to study and to preach should not be administrators or distracted with duties pertaining to buildings, facilities, finances, Care of widows, as we have here in Acts chapter 6. HVAC systems, entertaining, itineraries, or anything like that. Every one of those takes minutes. And minutes accumulate until there's a burden that distracts men away from prayer in the Word of God. And when a man that is called to be in the Word of God in prayer is distracted away from it, everyone loses. And we don't want anyone to lose. We want... Profiting to show itself by being committed to what God has set each man to do. Those who are called to preach should continually be praying, studying, and preaching. Give thyself wholly. Do you remember the verses from 1 Timothy 4.13? This is Paul to Timothy. Give thyself wholly to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. We understand that as reading the scriptures, exhorting men to their duties, And teaching Bible doctrine. Give thyself wholly to these three things that thy profiting may appear unto all. And everyone benefits when that takes place and deacons help that happen. We have existed so far on church members, wonderful, serving, loving church members doing unofficial acts to help the church go along week after week month after month, year after year, and it's worked relatively well. But we've reached a point where we can use deacons to take over some of those and at least administer them 
to take care of who's doing what and making sure everyone's happy and there's enough money from the general fund to cover needs that are needed in each one of those cases so that the pastor doesn't think about those things because it's a distraction. It's not because the pastor is lazy. It's because God has made a division of labor, and if we don't follow that division of labor, we lose. We all lose. We've had regular church members, and we will still have regular church members doing unofficial acts of service. And it's one way that regular church members love the Lord and love and serve the church, by volunteering for things. But we will have men appointed over to make sure that those things are done, and if there's volunteers for them, then those volunteers will still be used. But you will have set up one or more men by your choice, given God's qualifications, that will oversee that work in the church. So that it gets done and that everybody's happy, they're going to be your representatives to take care of the church in those matters. There are church functions that require official, what we would call official administration. Like when the general fund is being dispersed, we want someone in charge that you have selected that we are going to trust you with the disbursement of money for the sake of this church and the various ways that we spend money here. That we would call that official because everybody wants an accounting for that and they want it to be done above board and honestly. And so deacons will be in charge of that. When we say official administration, we mean somebody that's put in an office that does it formally and because they've been assigned the job. When we say unofficial tasks, we're talking about someone that just says, listen, I'll volunteer and do it. If no one else wants to do it, I'll do it. And we've got unofficial volunteers like that for many different tasks in the church. And by spreading it, many hands make a task light, and it makes the administration and the operation of this church very smooth and easy. However, when it comes to certain matters, in this case it was widows, when it involves people, and, and you, you should all know how parochial and personal and offended people can become, when they might feel slighted, even though a Christian should never feel slighted. But sometimes people get in the flesh and they feel slighted. And so there needs to be official work done in an office where everybody has agreed ahead of time, we're going to submit to the choices they make. And that's a deacon. He does have some authority. You know what, we've got to steer between, there's a ditch on one side, in many Baptist churches where deacons are nothing but an honorary title given to old men, they don't do a thing. It's just Deacon Jones, Deacon Smith. And they're just given those titles and they don't do the, they don't do a work. They don't have a work. They're not assigned jobs. And if some man is looking like he might leave the church, a politically astute church will ordain him as a deacon to help keep him. And that's just ridiculous. You know, some of the contacts that I've met through the Internet have complained to me, and I, I mentioned a greeting from a particular one of them that I'll not name right now because I named him earlier for your benefit. He was aghast that before he was a member, he was asked to be a deacon. Right. You know, that's just ridiculous. We're going to see that a man needs to be proved before he's put in the office of a deacon. His reputation needs to be established on how well he takes care of projects and sees them through and does them in a way that is above questioning and reproach. But we, there's one ditch on one side where deacons are just honorary titles given to, to men. 
You know, there are many Baptist churches our size that have as many men as we do and as many serious men as we do that would easily have ten or more deacons. All getting in each other's way, but not really getting in each other's way because they don't really have anything to do. It's not men that pray more. It's not men that get together and pray. If deacons get together and pray, that's something they choose to do on their own. They're not the prayer warriors of a church. The prayer warriors of a church may be a different group of men. They are men that the church trusts that takes care of secular and carnal matters. Then we have another ditch. The deacons over in this ditch think that they've been elected to an important office to protect the church from the pastor. And so they get, they have a deacons committee that gets together every month and decides what the pastor ought to be teaching. And when he steps on their toes, or usually their wives' toes, it makes it to the deacon board, and the deacon board tells the church, we don't agree with that here. Deacons were never used for anything like that. You can't see anything like that in Acts chapter 6. The twelve apostles didn't say, look ye out among you seven men that can hold us and be the checks and balances on us apostles so that we don't run away with the doctrine of the church. There's nothing like that. They are servants to help the twelve apostles preach the word of God without hindrance. So we've got a ditch over here where the deacon board takes to itself power and authority that God never gave it, and it becomes an onerous burden on a church. The pastor's fearful for his job of, that God has called him to, to preach the gospel. Because the deacon board's going to call him in question. A pastor doesn't have to report to any deacon board. No pastor, no apostle, no bishop reports to a deacon board. If anything, the deacons report to the pastor in the church for what they're doing. But those are the two ditches. We don't want to have the word deacon just being an honorary title. We don't want to have the deacons thinking that they're responsible for the pulpit. They're called the guardians of the pulpit in many churches. Nowhere is that taught in the Bible. They're not even equipped for that. The qualifications that we're going to look at, and there's about 15 of them, are going to show us men that are good business managers. They're managers. They, they rule their families well. They are full of honesty and integrity. They're sober. They're grave. They don't drink too much. They're not in love with money. They're men that you can have before you that you know when they're dispersing funds of the church, they're going to do it wisely and carefully for the benefit of this church and for the glory of God. And they're going to serve this church's servants. Right. What do deacons do? We're trying to answer that question. What are their qualifications? Let's look at a few of them. Let's just look at Acts chapter 6. There's 15. I'm going to help you before we pick them by giving you a little cheat sheet so that as you go through the membership and, and you think about men, you're going to measure them by what God gave as the qualifications or prerequisites. The Lord, the Lord is detailed sufficiently for us that we can know what a deacon ought to look like. Verse 3 of Acts chapter 6. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. They're going to be overseers. You know, and I'm using words that a lot of commentators and a lot of Baptist pastors do not like to use relative to deacons. 
But deacons are more than honorary titles. They are appointed over a business of the church. They take care of the things that just are a distraction to bishops, pastors, and apostles. So I call them exactly what they're called right here, whom we may appoint over this business. They're managers, and they take care of the things of a church. Three qualifications are in verse 3. By the way, right now, I want to just let me chase a short rabbit about Stephen and Philip. Philip, as we go to Acts... Acts chapter 7 is all about one deacon. Acts chapter 8 is all about another deacon. Acts chapter 7 is Stephen. Now we read about Stephen being able to perform miracles in verse 8. And then when Stephen got into debates with men from... from, uh, Verse 9 tells us about it. Men from several synagogues, the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, disputing with him, he was able to shut them up and to defend the gospel... Because he was a fulfillment of what Jesus had promised in Matthew chapter 10. That when you're called before magistrates and rulers, don't, give, don't worry about what you're going to say. Because I'll take care of it. And God blessed Stephen full of the Holy Ghost. So that he was able to defend the truth and shut their mouths. Right. And then he preached a wonderful sermon in chapter 7. That was an exceptional, extraordinary gift that Stephen had. And that God blessed him with on trial for his life. And he lost his life. But the Lord defended him and gave him the ability to speak like that. And we love Acts chapter 7 because of that sermon. And then they stoned him to death. But that's not ordinary deacon business. That was Stephen being blessed by God to go beyond overseeing the business to defending the gospel by the Holy Spirit against those Jews that were attacking it and him. Then Acts chapter 8 is another deacon, Philip who goes to Samaria when the, Jew, when the church at Jerusalem was scattered in the first four verses of Acts chapter 8. It says the church was blown apart by persecution, Saul of Tarsus being part of it. The apostles stayed put in Jerusalem. Those under them left and went preaching. And Philip was one of those. And so we have another preaching deacon. When we run into Philip after Acts and a baptizing deacon, but he had limited ability, limited authority from Christ. He could preach Jesus Christ and baptize, but he could not lay hands on and give the gifts of the Holy Ghost. So when there was a a large number of converts in Samaria, they called to Jerusalem for a couple of apostles to come down, who when they came down, they laid their hands on the converts so they could receive the Holy Ghost, because Philip did not have that level of authority from Jesus Christ. We run into Philip one more time in Acts chapter 21, where he's called Philip the Evangelist. Because he took the gospel from Jerusalem to Samaria. Jesus had said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And where we find him is in the city of Caesarea in Acts chapter 21. But those speaking abilities and preaching abilities that Stephen and Philip had, whether they had them by nature or God gave them to them specially as gifts of an evangelist, those are not required of a deacon because it's not in the list of qualifications here or in 1 Timothy 3. Right. What are the three qualifications here in Acts 6, 3? Honest report, full of the Holy Ghost, and wisdom. Are the three given here and the rest are in 1 Timothy 3? Well, no, there's another one that I've already mentioned that, kind of, that slips our attention unless we know that there's an error out there we need to correct. 
in Acts 6, 3, it says, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men. There's the first qualification. Then there are three more in the verse. The first one is men. The twelve apostles told the Jerusalem church to identify seven men for being deacons. The Jerusalem church, in obedience to the apostles, selected seven men to be the deacons. <coughs> they didn't take a vote and find out that they needed to have three and a half men and three and a half women because all the women were voting for deaconesses. They understood when the apostles called for something, that's exactly what they were to get. And they got seven men that are listed there in verse 5. Paul told Timothy, a qualification we're going to find later, is that deacons must have only one wife, which makes them men, limiting them to men in 1 Timothy 3.12. When we read in Romans 16 about women like Phoebe, and Otis, Paul, Paul praises Phoebe. She was an exceptional church member that took care of apostles, preachers, and church business wherever she could, but she wasn't in an office. She did not have official authority from churches. Paul just encouraged churches to help her because she had been a helper of him and of many others as an unofficial servant of the church, but not one in an office. We do not go to Romans 16 and take Paul's commendation of Phoebe and force it on Acts 6 or 1 Timothy 3. We go to Romans 16 and read about Phoebe and understand that she was an exceptional church member, like a Dorcas or like an Anna or like other widows indeed who give themselves to prayer for a church. They serve the church well, but they're not in an official office. They're in an unofficial service to the church. The second qualification right here in Acts 6.3 is of honest report. You want men, and the Jerusalem church needed men, who already had a reputation for impeccable honesty, impeccable integrity. You would never have to worry about the decisions they were making or the use of funds, because they were of honest report. When you have those two words together, you're being taught that it's the character trait of honesty, but not only is the person honest in private, it's so well known that the report of this person is he is honest. That man it has integrity. That man would never cheat the church. That man would never mislead the church. That man would never embezzle from the church. That man would not siphon funds or divert funds for any personal advantage. He's of honest report. And that's, a one, that's just two little words. But there's so much in that that the Bible teaches about honesty. The Apostle Paul was of honest report above and beyond. If you read about how he would deal with collections for the saints, like in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when he is writing to those in Achaia, the Corinthian church, to take a collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem, I preached through this, so I'm hoping that you can remember. He listed three brethren that he did not give their names. He just said, these three brethren have a reputation in all churches and they are the ones that are going to convey this money across the Mediterranean to Jerusalem. He goes through a number of verses saying they already have established reputations because we are going to provide things honest in the sight of all men so that no man can accuse us about this liberality. So the first qualification is they're men. The second qualification is they have a reputation for being very honest 
and of high integrity. They are men that have fulfilled what was said in Titus chapter 2 and verse 9 about a good servant. It says in Titus chapter 2, I got to get it started. Titus 2 9, exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, small thefts. Purloining, small thefts, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. There's a man that's of honest report. He shows all good fidelity in every assignment that's ever been given to him. There's no money that comes up short. No things lost. No confusion. Because he's known for his honesty. Number three, it says, full of the Holy Ghost. During this time, being full of the Holy Ghost, often you know, included the gifts of the Holy Ghost. Because for 40 years, when a man's full of the Holy Ghost, it showed itself in gifts. The ability to speak in tongues. Do you remember the uh, 12 men in Acts chapter 19 who had only been baptized under John's baptism? Right. How did Paul know very quickly they didn't have a good baptism? They had no spiritual gifts. And he said, what have you been baptized unto? And they said, John's baptism. Oh, Paul understood right then in Acts chapter 19, the first seven verses or so, they had a baptism problem. Then Paul baptized them, laid his hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost and spoke in tongues. In Acts chapter 2, everyone was speaking in tongues by the gift of the Holy Ghost because God showed that gift for 40 years to confirm the ministry of the apostles and the believers that came from them. Then it went away. So when we read the words, full of the Holy Ghost... We're not going to look for miracle workers in this church to become our next deacons. Or it's going to be a small group of deacons. We don't look for miracle workers. But we do look for men that are full of the Holy Ghost. Men that are full of the Holy Ghost have given themselves over to the Holy Spirit to lead their lives. They have fulfilled Ephesians 5.18 that says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. That is a choice by men who live spirit-directed lives. How do you tell if a man's full of the Holy Spirit? The things he wants to talk about are the things of heaven. The things he wants to talk about are the things of Jesus Christ. His concern is about Christ and his honor and glory. Because the Holy Spirit bears witness of Jesus of Nazareth. And to measure a man is to know that he loves the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the heavenly kingdom that we're all waiting for, the saints of Jesus Christ because they were purchased by Christ. Everything comes back to Christ and heaven and spiritual things. Right. How do we know a man that is led by the Spirit of God or full of the Holy Ghost? He's full of love, right. joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. That's how we would apply the words full of the Holy Ghost in our post-Reformation period of time. A man full of the Holy Ghost is very spiritually minded. He's very consistent. He lives a holy life. Because the, the Spirit's called the Holy Spirit for a reason. Right. He leads to holiness. He is holiness. He is holy. And he brings holiness to the lives where he is operating. A man who's quenched the Holy Spirit of God or grieved the Spirit of God will not talk about those things as much. You'll be, you, you should know the difference. I've preached on it so much. You should know the relative difference of man to man on who is truly led by the Spirit of God.
The last point for the, today is the last point in Acts chapter 6 and verse 3, full of wisdom. They had to be full of wisdom. And isn't that the kind of men you want representing you and taking care of the affairs of your church and the, and, and the distribution of your money? Full of wisdom. What is wisdom? The power of right judgment. The ability to judge wisely and make wise and sober decisions. A wise man is not impulsive. A wise man is cautious. A wise man is prudent. A wise man is discreet. A wise man has understanding. A wise man is knowledgeable. He's not a risk taker. He is cautious. He is careful. He considers everything very wisely in a whole circle. What's that called in the Bible? Circumspect. Circumspect. You inspect all angles of a decision before you make that decision. That is a wise man. There's no time to preach the book of Proverbs. But the book of Proverbs tells us what a wise man is and does. And I'm just trying to summarize some of it. The synonyms for wisdom in the Bible are prudence, discretion, understanding, good judgment. And the Bible tells us that a prudent man foresees the evil and he hides himself. He's cautious. He's not a risk taker. Because he's protecting capital, he's protecting people. He's protecting relationships by being cautious. And he's circumspect. I, I love that expression. It's in Ephesians 5. And if you're going to be wise, it says you've got to be circumspect, which means circum is a circle. Surely you can see that. And then spect is doing inspection. You're looking at every angle of a matter. Because if you only look at these particular aspects of a matter before you, you're going to make a warped decision. You have to look at everything. And that's what we want men to do that. Full of the Holy Ghost and full of wisdom. You know what this church did when they heard that? It says, the saying pleased the whole multitude. That sounds like a great way that everybody wins. When we do things God's way, it is win, win, win. In this case, the apostles won. The church won because they got the apostles back full time. And the widows won. They had men dedicated to protecting them and taking care of them. When you do it God's way, it is win, win, win. And we're going to do it God's way. And we're going to win, win, win by His grace. The ministry of the Word is preserved to do what God called them to do and enabled them to do. And that's the ministry of His Word. The deacons take that load off of the the ministry of the Word by taking care of the secular, carnal, earthly, worldly, financial, logistical matters of the church. And so the churches run better. You know, we have an HVAC unit that is frozen up today. I did not come earlier this morning to freeze it up, but it's frozen up. You You know why that's out there? For anyone that, when you leave today, why don't you snake your way around and, and come up this side driveway and go out onto uh, East Standing Springs Road so that you can see the igloo that is built out there beside the trailer, which is a frozen condenser unit of our HVAC for the building next door. Do you know what that is saying to you? Yes. I need a deacon. That's what it's saying to you. I need a deacon. And that's one of the things that they would take care of so that the women this morning would not find 
the fellowship hall at 55 degrees. Deacons can do better than that. And they will do better than that. I trust that you're excited with me to go through what the Bible says. We're going to run through the 15 qualifications, not today. Then we're going to get more and more practical on how we're going to do it. We're going to do it real soon here in the next couple of weeks. I'm going to help you with some cheat sheets to summarize these things that you can try to keep them in your mind. And as you think of candidates that you want to nominate to be a deacon, you can measure them by the Word of God. And we'll get a deacon or more for this church and separate some duties and have a division of labor here. May God bless the effort because we're trying to follow His Word and do exactly what He's called us to do.